I'm Chuck Smeaton from the Royal Institution of Australia, and this is the Cosmos Briefing Podcast. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land wherever you are listening from today. I would also like to pay my respects to Elders past and present. Today we talk with Dr Christian Schwab, an astronomer at Macquarie University who has just helped develop one of the most precise tools ever built for detecting new planets outside our solar system. The Neward Spectrometer was funded by NASA and the National Science Foundation and has just started scanning the skies at the Wynn 3.5 metre telescope at Kitt Peak National Observatory in the US. Today's interview is hosted by Cosmos journalist Lauren Fuge. So Christian, you've been involved in the design of a new planet hunting instrument that's now in operation on a telescope in Arizona. Can you tell me a bit about this new tool? Like what can it do and what advantages does it have over other instruments? Sure. Um, So it's a large spectrograph. It's a very precise spectrograph and really the name of the game in exoplanet research right now is making the instruments more precise so we're able to find smaller exoplanets. Everyone's really keen on finding Earth-like rocky exoplanets. They're tiny, they have very small signals, and uh, our instrument is now one of the most precise in the world. We can measure exoplanets that are maybe a bit larger than Earth from the precision that we've seen in the extended commissioning. This is really the exciting exciting part, that we were able to make it measure more precisely than we were able to even two or three years before. So how does this instrument actually work? So you cannot see exoplanets or most of exoplanets because they are so dim. What we actually do is we record the light of the star they're orbiting. And if a planet orbits a star, it induces a wobble in the star. It's really not a planet orbiting a star. It's both of them orbiting a common center of mass. So the planet pulls the star around. And... What we record is the spectrum of the star with very, very high fidelity. So the spectrum is made up of many, many different colors. And what we see is that those colors, the absorption lines in the spectrum of the star change depending on if the star is pulled away from us or towards us by the planet orbiting it. And so we record the change of the spectrum, the spectral lines going a bit redder, a bit bluer, a bit redder, a bit bluer over long enough to see one or ideally multiple um, orbital periods of the planet going around the star. And by saying that change over and over and over again, we can infer, oh, there must be a planet that's that's dragging that star around. Mm-hmm. Now, you were involved in the optical design of the instrument. How did you become involved and what was your contribution? Yeah, so I got involved with this instrument when I was a NASA Sagan fellow. Um, NASA is sponsoring postdoctoral fellowships for people working in exoplanets. Um, I was very lucky to to, uh, get one of those fellowships and moved with the fellowship to Penn State University. And at Penn State, I worked on an infrared spectrograph. Same thing, different wavelength range, just as big as well too. And while we were working on this, and I was working on the optics, um, the opportunity came out that we could apply to get the contract to build a new spectrograph for NASA. And so my, the, the mentor of my fellowship popped up in my office, Suvras Mahadevan, he's the PI of the new instruments, like, Chris, 
What do you think we should do? I said, well, I'm going to look at the optics. And then we spend a very long time preparing the proposal and looking at what's actually feasible. What can we do? How precise do we think? Can we push an instrument with current technology under the constraints of we have to use this particular telescope that NASA wanted the spectrograph on? This is roughly the funding volume that's available. And it was a pretty strict timeline. So I, for a good one, one and a half years, um, designed these optics. I let the optical design, then once we actually got awarded the grant. But uh, even, even in the beginning, in the proposal phase, we spent many months just trying to make everything as ready as we can, so we can ourselves assess how precise can we do and how much will it cost. Um, yeah. And then at the end of um, my fellowship, I moved to Macquarie University to take up a position here as, as, as lecturer in, in astrophotonics. But I've been involved with the team and um, went back many times before the lockdown happened to commission an instrument as well. Yeah, so it's not like a long process. You take a lot of like tweaks and changes in order to get it to work properly. Yeah. But it came together pretty well, which made me very happy in the end. But it really paid to have a very intense design phase in the beginning. We did, I did this for the optics design, other colleagues did the same for the mechanical design, for the thermal design of the instrument. We really looked at what are the different options. And we basically designed three different instruments, pretty detailed down, and then compared what we think they could do instead of deciding up front. And um, then spent a lot of time getting things as right as possible. These optics are big, so you can't make them over and over and over again. It's too expensive and the lead times are such that you can't do it. And then the final integration, when everything was in the lab and all those expensive optics sat around and no one wanted to touch them, and then we craned them in, um, the spectrum happened within a few weeks. It was very, very nice to see. We had at this point, so we started this in 2013, I believe. I had worked on this for quite a few years, and seeing the first spectrum come out was was great. Mm -hmm. So, what kind of data do you hope to get from the instrument? Like, what do you hope to discover with it? The instrument is really built to find and characterize rocky planets. Hopefully, around stars that are very close to us, makes them easier to observe because they're brighter. Um, but also, of course, anything close by is more interesting for follow-up. And so the push towards better precision, um, when we started this instrument, the typical precision with which we could measure the speed of a star that pulling back and forth was about a meter per second. So not dissimilar to walking speed. We pushed that to about 0.3 meters per second. Um, that makes all the difference in terms of how big or small a planet you can find. And um, we really hope that this instrument will make significant contribution in getting to a handful of, of bona fide rocky exoplanets in our solar neighborhood um, that then can be studied with space missions that will look for atmospheres around that. But before these space missions, like the James Webb Space Telescope, or Ariel um, in, in Europe, 
before they can study anything, they need to know what to look at, what star to look at, which star in our cosmic, our solar neighborhood harbors planets that are similar to Earth with a rocky surface. And this is really what we're aiming for. And yep. the, the science program has just started. Mm -hmm. So you're hoping to build that kind of database that will help those telescopes in the future. Yeah, we we have a we have several programs running, but one of them is we look at a handful of very carefully pre-selected stars that have been observed with other slightly less precise instruments before that look promising, as in the star itself has spectra and is quiet enough, not having atmospheric movement, so that it would you know make it impossible to find a signal. We have those pre-selected stars and we'll stare at them for about five years over and over and over and over again. And we hope that we find a very tiny repetitive movement in the spectrum of the star um, that would indicate a rocky exoplanet orbiting it. And then, I mean, we hope we get a handful of them and these would then be top contenders for follow-up with space-based missions that would search for atmosphere around them. And I know you've got the one in the US, but you've also built a smaller instrument at Macquarie University as well. What are you going to use that one for? So, yeah, we, we got very lucky when the uh, new design was done. We played around with it and saw how does that scale when you make it small and scrub out everything that's not particularly necessary. And it's I am in lab right now because I have lab work to do today anyway, so it is behind me. This is, this is a mini version. It's primarily a teaching tool. I am in the uh, optical laboratory at our campus observatory, and we use this instrument now for our undergrad and graduate students to observe stars and bigger exoplanets from our campus observatory, go through the whole data reduction process, learn how to handle an instrument, learn how to handle a telescope, learn how frustrating it is if the weather doesn't play, um, so that they really get um, a good feeling for how it is to be an observational astronomer. And to give you a, a rough idea what the precision, how precision scales. So this is a half size copy and I'm sitting in a temperature controlled room. The real instrument knew it in the United States is covered in a vacuum chamber or enclosed in a vacuum chamber um, with a thermal shield that's extremely precisely controlled to better than millikelvin this thing is sitting in a temperature-controlled room, which is sitting in another temperature-controlled room. So we really spend a lot of time making it stable. Here, we just live with what we have. And the difference in precision is maybe, we maybe get to about 10 meters per second here, compared to 0.3 in the United States, which doesn't sound all that much of a difference. But it really shows that in these instruments, um, a tiny improvement typically means many, many people going to the lab many, many times and trying to make the temperature control loop just a bit better. And in the data reduction software, really figure, figuring out what's this tiny statement coming from. And um, at the precision that we get here, 10 meters per second, uh, you can absolutely find or rediscover a lot of exoplanets, um, massive ones, planets like Jupiter, um, Planets like the very first one that was discovered that uh, got awarded the Nobel Prize, um, 51 Pegasi B. It's all uh, This one is hard here because of where it's on the sky. But um, planets like this are all in principle discoverable with an instrument like the one behind me.
And from a teaching perspective, that's, that's very nice that, to rediscover famous results instead of looking at data that someone has recorded. Do you have a favorite exoplanet system or a favorite exoplanet? I, I have one. Um, that's a bit obscure. It's an exoplanet orbiting Hipparchos 31592. It's a star that's just about visible with the naked eye. I found that one in my PhD thesis. And so that one is, it's not an exciting exoplanet by any means, but seeing that one emerge in the data, it was an instrument very similar to the one behind me. It was not a particularly precise instrument, actually. Um, used a small telescope. Um, but yeah, seeing in the data reduction, reducing it over and over again, um, seeing, oh, there's a signal, and then really confirming, yeah, that's a real exoplanet. And I found it. That was, that was very exciting. And I've, I've worked on systems with the newer team um, in the States, that spectrograph team, that clearly have more interesting exoplanets in them. But the first one is still, that excitement is hard to top. All right, Christian, well, thank you so much for having a chat to me. And yeah, best of luck for your exoplanet search with NUID. Thank you very, very much for having me. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode. Remember that you can head to cosmosmagazine.com via the link in the description for more great content. You can also subscribe to Cosmos Magazine, Australia's only science print magazine, and Cosmos Weekly, our online subscription-based deep dive into the biggest issues. You can watch and listen to all our Cosmos briefings via the link that you'll also find in the description. And remember, if you support science and its communication, please support our work at the Royal Institution of Australia. I'm Chuck Smeaton. Today's interview was hosted by Lauren Fuge and our executive producer is Catherine Roberts. Thank you. Thank you.